Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone. I uh, hope everyone was able to get enough to eat for lunch. My name is Gara Verma, and I'm a first year MBA at MIT Sloan. And I'm proud to introduce today's panel on alternative on the alternative asset sports. We're joined today by our panelists, Mark Abbott, president of Major League Soccer, Jordan Salman, partner at Arcto Sports Partners, and Ben Hess, the CEO of JP Morgan's asset and wealth management division. Moderating our panel will be Ben Fisher from the Sports Business Journal. The panel will run about 45 minutes, and after that, there will be 10 minutes for Q&A. Audience are welcome to submit questions via Twitter with the hashtag sportsinvesting. And without further, further ado, I'm going to turn this over to today's moderator, Ben Fisher. Thank you. Thank you, Garv. So this is, uh, this is a, a perfectly timed panel. It's been something I've been watching for a couple of years now with a lot of interest. and. Uh, as a reporter who spends most of my time in the NFL trying to get caught up on this before it happens in my world. Uh, let's set the stage for anyone who maybe hasn't been paying attention to fund investment in sports for, for decades, centuries even, if you count Major League Baseball and its predecessors, sports teams were owned by individual wealthy people and their friends who maybe are a little less wealthy, but nevertheless fit the same standard. Um, and then in 2019, Major League Baseball, said that uh, teams can now share, sell equity to private equity funds. And since then, three more leagues have come through. Lots of deals have already been done. How do we get to this point? I think each of you can answer that question from a different perspective. Mark Abbott at, the, at Major League Soccer, how do we get to that point that this became not only a good idea, but something that was going to happen so rapidly? So I think there were a number of factors, some that were related to the league, themselves, and I can talk about our league's experience, how we came to that conclusion. And secondly, uh, changes and evolution in the fund industry itself. So on the league side, a couple of things. 10 years ago, you could buy a major league soccer team for $40 million. Now the average value is over $550 million. You could build a stadium for less than $100 million. Today, stadiums are 350 to $500 million. So the capital needs for a major league soccer club are significantly higher than they were even five years ago. And so we were looking for new sources of capital to help people fund uh, these new needs. Uh, the second is, in all sports, and in particularly in our league, uh, we had a number of fund executives, senior fund executives, make individual investments in clubs. And so we had on our board people who had had experience in the fund industry who we were able to talk to about how to craft a policy and how it might work. And then third, we have owners that also own teams in other sports in, in, in the United States and abroad, frankly. And so what we saw from them is they were also having these discussions in other leagues, and so it all came together. On the fund side, I think there's a couple of things that have happened. One is, and, and Jordan can talk about this, the emergence of funds that are solely dedicated to investing in sports and entertainment. That's not something that we had a few years ago. And so I think as we saw that sector starting to grow, we recognized there was an opportunity. And even funds that are not solely focused on sports and entertainment, but maybe have a broader remit, certainly look at it as an industry sector that they want to be involved with. And so we, we have big funds that are looking at all sorts of industries, but have a sector that focuses on sports. And it's the combination of those two things that led us to this. 
I see. Ben, maybe uh, same question to you, but maybe I think you're the only person on here whose uh, employer doesn't have the word sports or a sport title name in it. So you want to tell us a little bit of why you're on stage and yeah. answer that question from your perspective. Thank you with, for inviting me anyway. <laughs> with, it. Well, there's a good answer to those questions. But and uh, tell us about what you've seen from your perspective as we've come to this point. Yeah, I, you're exactly right. I don't work at a sports company. I work at JP Morgan Chase, which is the country's largest bank. And um, we have four different lines of business, uh, the corporate investment bank, the commercial bank, uh, Chase, and then asset and wealth management, which is the business I work in. And a decade ago, across the firm, we did very little in sports. I mean, we had some lending and some advisory. Now, every one of the four lines of business has teams dedicated, in some cases, multiple teams dedicated towards sports. And in asset and wealth management, what we noticed starting about a decade ago is the interest from clients, especially on the global private bank, in getting involved in the sports industry had really exploded. Um, and so um, over the last couple of years, we've done a number of financings, both on stadiums and on teams. Um, but clients, increasingly, as valuations have gone up, have been looking to, you know, if they got involved in this space, have been asking, are there any ways I can make my business more, or my sports franchise less of a hobby and more of a business? And I think that's also um, you know, been accompanied by the rise in valuations. Also, some of the people who are getting involved in the industry are more investment-oriented, and then you have funds uh, like Jordan's that are getting involved too. And so at JP Morgan Asset and Wealth Management, what we decided is, as always, like how can we help our clients? And so we looked around and we saw Kraft Analytics Group, Kager, Jessica Gelman's firm, who is the leader in analytics in the space and can really help clients drive profitability. And so we took an equity stake last summer. Uh, there was a lot of press around that. You know, why is JP Morgan Chase getting involved in sports? But it was really to help our clients. Um, and, and in two ways, like, you know, as I mentioned before, like helping clients, you know, uh, drive profitability in their sports franchises, but also internally. You know, one thing we're, we're looking at is how do we, with all the data we have, both internal and external, how do we make better decisions for clients, for advisors, for our investors, all the different constituencies in our asset and wealth management business. And Kager's helped us uh, create some really great dashboards and analytic tools to do that uh, internally. So we're super excited about the partnership. Uh, Jessica's firm had, I think, had a record year last year. This morning, I think she announced a partnership with the uh, Philadelphia Eagles. So uh, very exciting stuff. More to come. Great. Jordan, this is a way of giving you the chance to introduce Arcto Sports Partners, but also, you know, before that, you were with Madison Square Garden. You've been around the industry for a long time. Take us through this evolution from your perspective. Yeah, thanks, thanks Ben. Um, is that yeah. one on? Mic on? Mic on, let's see. Can you hear me okay now? That's better. Okay. Um, so the evolution that we've seen, I think, Ben, I'll just add to a little bit of what you're saying. I think over the last 10 to 20 years, there's been a meaningful level, uh, leveling up of the sophistication of ownership groups and leagues, right, in, in terms of how they have evolved from looking at this as something that was more fun to now is more, thank you, something that was more fun and now is more of a business for them. And what's interesting, if you look back at the, over the last decade, about 60% of the new sports team owners are people who come from leading tech companies like uh, Alibaba or Microsoft, right, with Steve Ballmer, but also uh, private equity or finance executives. And so the industry's evolved, but also there's been a change in the way that people perceive ownership. And so we've, we started Arctos to do really three things. Um, the first is to provide liquidity to the ecosystem. So especially for existing owners today, whether it's the controlling owner, 
or their limited partners who might want to sell down or sell out for a variety of reasons, right? It, it may be for tax planning purposes, it might be because of death or divorce, or it just could be a change of their interests or their desires. Um, so liquidity is the first. The second is, is growth capital. Like we are big believers in this industry, but also believers that this industry, like technology, like um, uh, healthcare and biotechnology, needs growth capital to help uh, capture the growth opportunities that exist in this industry, right? And there are 10 to 12 of them that we think are particularly exciting. And so we can support teams and leagues with growth capital. And then the third is acquisition financing. When a team, a new ownership group is coming in, um, the potential control owner may not be able to finance all of it. Now, part of that's because the leagues very prudently over the years have put in some pretty significant debt limitations on financing franchises. So while Ben and his team at JP Morgan might be willing to finance up to some 70 or 80% of a, of a sports acquisition franchise, the leagues um, in their wisdom have limited that. It's about 15 to 20% across the big four leagues. And then the other is that they may not have the capital themselves or the liquidity to do it. And so we can help. And you know, we were proud to, to be a part of the group that, that invested in, in the real Salt Lake alongside David Blitzer and, and Ryan Smith in that capacity. So at that point of, of go time for Arctos, was this something that you needed the regulatory regime at the leagues to change in addition to all of these trends that continue to develop, or was it ready to go and all you needed was the legal permission, so to speak, from the team, from the leagues at that point? Yeah, look, you, you alluded to a little bit in your introduction. The, the industry has evolved from being what was really a, you know, 30, 40, 50, even 100 years ago, a family business or something people were doing for fun. It's evolved. There was a bunch of corporate and institutional ownership for many years, right? Newspapers. Right. And Disney owned, you know, the, the, the Ducks and the Angels and Fox owned the Dodgers and Cablevision owned the Knicks and Rangers. That, what's really shifted is there's a focus at the league level to have a person with two legs and a beating heart who can own, who can own that, that team. Um, but what they have realized is given the debt limitations, given the rising valuations, and also this, these growth opportunities that there was flexibility or need for flexibility to bring institutional capital in a very bespoke way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we thought, we saw the changes at Major League Baseball in early 2019 where they would allow funds up to 15% per club, a maximum of 30 in aggregate for any one club from a private equity firm and that mm -hmm. we could invest across multiple clubs. Uh, and we thought that that was the precursor for what was likely to evolve across the, the remainder of the industry. Sure. We, were, we, uh, we started Arctos hoping that that would happen. Uh, that was a bet we all made and, and so far we've been, um, we've been right. And we, we think that's gonna continue to be a, a, an emerging big trend in the ecosystem, but it's, it has to be done with certain parameters. And I think, you know, the MLS rules are really, really well done. And, and we can talk about those and how you guys thought about them. But in particular, we have no insight whatsoever to what's happening on the, on the field or on the pitch or on the ice, right, or on the court. That we stay out of on the business side is where we can have, you know, a, a passive supportive role and that, but that's not how most private equity funds are structured. Right. So we had to, Taylor Arctos and the way that we, we work with our, um, with our partners at the league and teams, but also with our investors, our institutional investors, to get them comfortable with how that would be structured, mm -hmm. uh, unlike traditional private equity or venture capital firms. Yeah, I definitely want to hit more on you know, what happens once you make the investment and you're, you're there. Uh, so, so let's stick a pin in that. Um, but 
for now, the, that's a great word, bespoke. Uh, and Mark, I was hoping you could take us through how MLS landed on those particular numbers and those particular guardrails. Sure. And, and I think we know why you'd like this money involved without fundamentally changing the nature of the control owners. But take us through that process and how you got there. Sure. So we're very fortunate. I mentioned, you know, we have a number of senior fund executives who have made individual investments in clubs. And on our board, we have probably three or four of the leading fund executives in the entire world. Uh, and so we put together a working group with them to come up with what they thought was something that was both attractive to, in the marketplace, but understanding their roles as owners in Major League Soccer, what was also the appropriate balance to strike uh, for the league and for the clubs. And so, you know, there are just four or five very basic principles. Uh, Jordan talked about one of them. The first is the funds have to be qualified and have certain criteria. All the leagues look at, uh, you know, a certain size of fund, a certain lack of concentration of investment within the fund, um, and who the investors behind the fund are. All, all those questions are very important. Uh, the second is that we do limit what the size of an investment. In our case, it's 20%, but you can invest in multiple teams. So in our case, you can be invested in four teams. So although you can't build perhaps the scale that you want in any one particular investment, you can across the league. Uh, and that's how we came up uh, with that number. They are non-voting interests, um, but the people who run these funds are very smart, very experienced, got a good macro view on a lot of different things going on in our industry. And so we do see that there's going to be uh, benefit beyond the capital from being involved with a, a number of people who are operating uh, these funds. Um, but those are the basic you know, parameters of, of how it works. What we, uh, what we didn't want to do was change the fundamental nature of what the control owner in our league is able to do. It's a fundamental ta uh, part of all sports, uh, in North America anyway, that there's a single individual who has day-to-day -day operational control, has the most equity invested in the club. That's what's driven our success, and I would argue the success of all the leagues in North America, and that's something we weren't going to change. The second is it was very important in structuring this that it didn't implicate the, the debt rules in the way that uh, Jordan talked about. So uh, in our case, you can have up to 33% leverage against the club and the stadium combined. Um, and we, we, we very specifically didn't want debt-like attributes uh, in the fund investment. So there's no calls, there's no puts, uh, there's no term to it. It has to be long-term capital. If it weren't, we'd look at it like debt, and that's not something we wanted to be able to, that's not the way we wanted to, to approach this. I see. Uh, so now each of the leagues that has promulgated the rules, they don't quite line up. They seem to be broadly similar in sort of what the theoretical purpose of these uh, rules are, but they differ a little bit. Uh, Jordan, as somebody who's looked across all of the opportunities, do those differences just reflect the particulars of a negotiation or discussion around their table and they're all basically doing the same thing? Or are there meaningful differences between how the NBA and the MLS and NHL and MLB have approached this? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the broad construct of them are all very consistent. Okay. Right? And I think Mark laid out um, many of the key elements there. And I think, look, each of the leagues has their own priorities and their own constituents to, to navigate with. I think, look, to all of their credit, they're, they're walking before they're running. And, and we are, too. We want to make sure that this collectively is, is a real boon for the industry, that it works really well. And I think um, 
the leagues have learned from each other, I think, and, and their shared advisors and, and their shared ownership groups, right? There are, for the, most of the owners, right, there are owners in each of these leagues. Right, these aren't exactly the silos. Right? So learn, I mean, there's yeah. a lot of... And they learn from each other, and I think it'll continue to evolve in a, in a really constructive way for the industry. Mm -hmm. So, Ben, my question to you on this is, knowing your clients, does this fund evolution, does this scratch the itch, or when people say, they want to own a sports team, do they mean control owner? Do they mean Jerry Jones? I think it depends on the wealth level and the amount of time um, and resources that the individual can, com can commit. Um, I got to tell you right now, the amount of interest in MLS uh, is really off the charts. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, I think it's accessible. It's more accessible than maybe some of the other leagues are. Uh, number two, I think there's some really great demographic trends in this country around soccer. Um, and then number three, I think if you look at, you know, where media contracts and team valuations could go over time, I think MLS has done something really interesting with U sports, connecting U sports with pro sports. Um, if you're a 14 year old, you can play for the revs. And so what you'll see is like the, the number of kids at these games and the, and the attendance trends are really, really powerful. And as a, a father of a 10 year old girl who plays for NYCFC, I hope you do something similar with MLS next with the girls. Um, in the next few years, I think that would be awesome too, but she's super psyched about being involved with your league. That's great. So when we're at this point of, um, of, of saying go for the funds to get involved, um, I, I think maybe in, in, in bringing the audience up to this point, we maybe missed a point that may be obvious, but why are valuations doing what they're doing right now? Uh, at the risk of insulting the intelligence of the people in the room, I think let, let's hit that quickly. Obviously, it's very popular, it's growing, but you know, live events business hasn't been easy the last couple of years. So just, just in general, why is it, not only has it gotten to this point, why are all these investors so convinced it's going to continue to go on this path? A couple things, they're unique assets, um, and people have a variety of reasons that they make investments. Um, you know, for a long time, it has been driven primarily from a financial value perspective. And that, although that there are other benefits uh, that people derive, you know, uh, connection to community is something that we hear a lot about. Uh, ultimately, they are financial investments, but they have a very long time frame. Uh, and that's, that's really, when you think about what's driven sports historically, it has been individuals or families looking at this as a legacy for them and their family in their particular community. Um, so I think that, that the unique aspect of it is something that helps drive the valuations. The continued growth, both in revenues and income, is a second thing. It's a, you know, it's a financial, they, they, they do make sense from a financial um, uh, perspective. And then in our case, uh, you know, I think as the, uh, a, a league that's still continuing to grow, a recognition that uh, as far as we've come, uh, we have a lot of upside less, left to go. And so, you know, our investments have grown, our value teams, you know, 10, 11x in 10 years. That's a tremendous growth rate. Uh, and our owners, without having a specific growth rate in mind, know that that's going to continue. Uh, and I think that that's what's driving the valuations. Can I add something to that too? Please do. Um, because there's a lot of, there's a big question out there right now with potential owners um, and people who want to get involved with this space on what happens when you see interest rates rise. And obviously there's been you know, a, a, a ton of increase in valuations in a period where interest rates, rates have been historic low levels. Um, and so if you look historically and you see assets with maybe volatile cash flows as interest rates rise, typically their valuations go down and sometimes down a lot. Um, but I do think that there's so much interest in this space and there's so few 
uh, assets available, unlike a lot of other different asset classes, I'm not sure you're gonna see valuations pull back a ton. Um, and, but that's a real big point of debate right now for people who are thinking about getting involved. That's interesting. So Yeah, I mean, look, in some ways having relatively low LTVs, like that low debt, yeah. The value ratios makes the interest rates less relevant here. Inflation, you know, to some extent, is relevant mm -hmm. on the cost side. But you know, if you think, if you disaggregate, like, what's the value of a franchise? Think about it. We we like to think about it in three ways. The first is whether you're in the MLS or the NBA, Major League Baseball, you own one thirtieth or thirty-second or twenty-ninth of the league revenues, right? It doesn't matter if you're the Sacramento Kings or the Golden State Warriors. You get the same. You're entitled to that same share which is hugely valuable. And these, these leagues are worth billions and billions of dollars because of the media rights they generate, the marks and logos, the, the global value. So you're getting that kind of, we, we like to think of it for those, this is a business school, so for those of you who think about, you know, the, um, when you think about your finance classes like alpha and beta, we think of that as like the beta factor of sports is the league revenues that come in. Then you've got the local revenues, right, and what you can generate from your local regional sports networks, your tickets, your suites, your stadium, and especially when you own those assets, you have particularly valuable asset there. And then the third is all the ancillary opportunities you have to build around your stadium and around your brand in your city, right, that you have a unique platform, to your point, Mark, about this community asset to build real estate developments, to build um, ancillary and, and other businesses to own a piece of your regional sports network. And so when you put those three elements together, the league factor, the local revenues, and that broader platform, and by the way, some tax benefits that come with it, it's an extremely valuable asset. And that doesn't even kind of cover off what is to some clearly factors in a little bit of this affinity element to it, but also this willingness and desire to give back to the community. And so we're big believers that asset values in the industry are going to continue to grow and that there's a whole, another big trend coming of platformization of, of these uh, clubs coming together, two or three, and like we, we experienced some of that, my partner Doc O'Connor and I at Madison Square Garden owning the Knicks and the Rangers, the, the synergies that come from owning multiple franchises, especially in the same arena, arena are significant. And so we expect that to be another driver of, of valuation growth in the, in the industry over time. So a lot of themes came up with all three of you there. We've got uh, safeguards against downside, the security of being part of a league. There's no promotion and relegation in any of the leagues we're talking about here. Um, the guaranteed cut of the national re uh, uh, revenue. Meanwhile, a lot of potential for the upside. If you do things right and be smart at the local level and the regional level even. Um, but I, I think, Ben, maybe you alluded to this when you said volatile cash flows. Um, for, for most of my life, the knock on sports has been, yes, valuation growth, and ultimately that's fine. But in the day-to-day, month-to-month situation, it's not necessarily always a real pretty picture cash flow-wise. My sense is that's changed a lot recently. Um, to what extent does that matter to a private equity fund investor when we're all pretty certain that the, value, the asset valuation itself will go up regardless of what's happening in the, in the short and medium range? You should ask the private equity investor. <laughs> I think the, um, it's, a, it's a great question. Look, pre-pandemic, like 93% or more of the teams were generating operating income mm -hmm. in the big four leagues, like with the MLS, like right on their heels. And so that's helped to really steady that issue. And I think there's been a variety of factors that have driven that over the last 10 to 15 years, including sophisticated ownership, mm -hmm. um, changing in the CBA landscapes, 
with the players and how those are structured. But in the end, like these are actually really strong recurring revenue businesses. And so while there are um, options for how you decide to spend your, your money as a team owner, the recurring revenue nature, it's super resilient, right? And I think we saw that in the pandemic while ticket sales shrank meaningfully, sponsorships, media rights, uh, revenues were, were quite resilient. And so I think people are less focused on the day-to-day the -day cash flows, but they are for the most part positive and, and self-funding, which is different than it, where it was 15, 20 years ago. Right. It's, it hasn't been that long ago. I remember people really were losing money. And now I guess with the lockout in one of the big leagues, maybe some people are trying to tell us that they're not making as much money as they are. But uh, that, uh, those are my words, not your all. So, uh, so let's talk a little bit more practically. Um, once these investments happen, I guess, I don't know, you've got a, several you could choose from in Arctos, but how does the business of the teams change? And I guess I have a similar question for you, Mark, from the MLS perspective. Other than the money, how, how, what's some evidence I can see of fund involvement in a team? So it's just, you know, it's relatively new, right? We've, we haven't had, uh, it's like six months for the two investments that we've had. Um, we have high expectations that, as I said earlier, that the people who run the funds have broad experience in our industry uh, and that they're going to add strategic value um, to the clubs. In our case, both of the, the deals were pretty much related either to acquisition or uh, a shareholder uh, transaction in the other case. And so we're starting now to see how that may translate into growth ideas for the future, but we're pretty confident that's what's going to happen. Yeah, look, when we started the firm, we, our thesis was we're passive investors. We're going to pick great management teams, great markets, great franchises and brands, great leagues to partner with, and that they are going to drive the growth in a relatively hands-off hands -off way. What we've experienced is that there is a desire for us to share best practices and ideas um, in certain areas, but each franchise is different, and I think that's what's compelling about... Um, what we're doing. In some cases, it's, hey, can we talk about how do we grow? Hey, we don't yet, we don't yet have a cryptocurrency sponsor. How have you seen other teams thinking about this? And can you help us navigate that? And others, it's, hey, we want to acquire another team in a different league or in a different market. Can you help us? Have you heard of anything that's for, for sale? Or can you help us evaluate what the right valuation would be? Um, but for the, like, we are very much um, see ourselves as just really good partners. We want to work collectively. And I think um, over time, what, you, you, what we'll try to do is just try to bring as many best practices, data and analytics, which is we love the folks at Kager and what Jess is doing, and we think that's a really great partnership you guys have, is to help increase the sophistication across the industry. How did the pandemic affect the use case, so to speak, for fund money in teams? I guess. Well, we launched our policy in uh, June of 2020, so we were right at the uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, and and we've done you know two deals uh, since then, really just in the last six months. So I, I don't, we didn't see much of an impact on the pandemic. We saw it on our business. There were no fans sure. in 2020. We were fortunate to get most of our stadiums back to capacity in 2021, and in 2022, uh, we'll be pretty much entirely back to uh, capacity. So although our business was impacted, we didn't see uh, interest in our uh, clubs wane in any way. You know, we did a, a number of different uh, transactions. We did three sales 
2021, uh, all evaluations that were similar to what was happening uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, so we didn't see an impact of the pandemic on this aspect of it uh, uh, in our business. In addition, you know, we, we, we had a number of other achievements during the pandemic. We opened three new stadiums, each of which cost more than $350 million to build. So I think it just shows, again, somebody used the word resiliency of sports. I think, if anything, that, that was really shown uh, in the last two years, and we came out of it uh, in, in good shape. So the reason I ask is before the pandemic, if you had imagined this scenario on a whiteboard, I might have said, yeah, maybe there's less interest in growth capital, less stretching for the future, and more recapitalizing, more buying people out, or more infusing the, the, the team with liquidity. Um, I don't know if that happened at the scale that we thought it would, but I think it probably happened in a few isolated cases. Um, from Arctos' perspective, did the nature of the deals you were seeing change as the economics changed, uh, temporarily, but changed so dramatically? Yeah, so we started the firm in the fall of 2019. Mm. Before we did, we thought through a lot of risks to the business and what, you know, before we stopped doing other things in our lives and, and focused on this. There was, having a global pandemic was not on that list of risks, as right. you can imagine. And so when that started happening in February, March of 2020, it was a meaningful shift to, to the landscape. And there were a couple of weeks where we, this was before we closed our fund, where we were like, oh my God, are we, are we out of business? Is this not gonna happen? Um, Fortunately, our financial partners stuck with us. I think the financial markets had a, you know, were quite resilient and people saw that there was light at the end of the tunnel. And so, but it did shift to your question. It did shift how we were able to partner with, with franchises. I think there was a somewhat acute need in some cases for capital to help navigate through the pandemic. But I think it also just accelerated the conversations with leagues and teams and owners about how we could help them and how we could be helpful. Uh, so it has clearly shifted, I think, and maybe sh shook the industry in a positive way in our view, yeah. but um, it wasn't something we would have predicted. But I would ask Ben, I mean, from your client's perspective, did the pandemic make buying into sports assets more attractive, less attractive, or it was always? It, it's really, it was really an extraordinary thing because the, um, the in the expectations for distress in the second quarter of 2020, and you can, you can see this in the reserves that the banks built. In a couple quarters, the banks in this country built $200 billion of reserves with the expectations that you get all kinds of credit problems. It didn't happen. And the reason for that was an extraordinary policy response um, with the Federal Reserve from, uh, from the Congress in terms of stimulus. Um, and as a result, everyone was expecting things to happen on the distress side, but they didn't. And instead, valuations went up quite quickly. The market bottomed, I think, in March or April, early April, and, and valuations actually went to new highs, especially as the expectations for low interest rates continuing for a long period of time uh, were set. Um, so I think it triggered a lot of conversations, but the valuation, uh, the valuations didn't reset. And so you, then you see transactions that happen, happen at new, new highs. Uh, so it's, it was a really interesting period. So the mix, uh, I think it's fair to say that Arctos, you've done a deal or two in every sort of broad category of buying out an existing LP, buying and acquiring a team altogether with a group and, um, and, and growth capital infusion. Maybe the, maybe the mix of that has changed a little bit, but mostly those are still three core reasons you'd be good in getting into, uh, getting into a team and they all still exist in the same way they did at start. So, okay. That's, it's, you're right, sometimes it's amazing to think that this wasn't a more severe hit than it was, so. Absolutely. 
Um, so uh, one of the questions that came in from the audience, and thank you for bringing them in. I, I don't like just saving them for the end when everyone's tired. Let's, 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 we'll mix them in as we get going. One of the questions was, um, I guess, again, this could be for all three of you, but probably primarily, Jordan. Um, what are the quick wins you look for once you do invest in a team? What are the sort of the things that you want to see that this is you know, really worth the time and the money and, the, uh, and proof that what you're doing is working? I, I know it's passive, but do you see something that ideally develops in the short term? Well, look, when we, when we talk to, to the ownership groups and the management teams before we invest, we want to understand their, their aspirations for, mm -hmm. for growth, for platform building, for improving the business, and, and ask how we can help them. And, if we can at all, right? And I think what we try to look for are on those couple of two to three big growth vectors or area or pain points. Like, have you, you know, how is it going? Has it gotten better? Have we been helpful? And and have we brought the right resources to bear? So whether that's you know we have 18 advisors that work with us across a range of uh, areas of capability from ticketing to to social media, to media rights, et cetera, and, and can we be helpful in those in those big areas? But look, some of it, this is sports. Some of it is is how does the ball bounce? Did you score a goal in that playoff game or did you not? And that element we can't control, and so we try to focus on how can we be helpful and in enabling our our partnership groups. Mm -hmm. Mark, from the league's perspective, do you see? direct evidence of well, now that a team's got a fund involved in it, do you see things happening differently? Well, in our case, you know, the, the, the one that uh, Artos is involved with was the acquisition of a club uh, that we needed new ownership for. Um, and, you know, Salt Lake. Pardon me? In Salt Lake. In Salt Lake. Yeah. Uh, it was a club that the team, the league actually took over operations for the club for, for a variety of different reasons and was uh, looking for new ownership group. Uh, and brought in an outstanding, as, as Jordan said, uh, David Blitzer and, and Ryan Smith, who uh, uh, owns the Jazz in, in Utah. And having Arctos as part of the capital structure, I think, was an important part of getting that deal done. So it helped us achieve, from a league perspective, a very, very important objective. Um, as we talked about earlier, there will be other uses for this type of capital. Some of it will be growth capital. There's no doubt about it. And I, and I expect within the next year or so, we'll see deals in our league that are aimed at that. But so far, it's been more on the acquisition side, but really important acquisitions. Right, makes sense. Let's talk about the growth because I think that's really exciting. Every operator I've ever talked to on the business side of a pro team has a million things they would love to do that would probably help everybody out a lot and make a lot of money, but there's just not enough people in the room to do it. So. What is, what is sort of the, uh, the vision for an ideal deployment of growth capital through a private equity fund in a sports team right now? I, I, so a couple things. One is infrastructure, right? So we, we, we're, we're continuing to grow our league. And so we've had a, uh, a policy of requiring people either to build a new stadium or make a significant investment in an existing stadium to make it work for us. Uh, that requires a lot of capital. And so uh, we have a number of uh, projects that are, are still on the drawing boards that are going to require capital. And I see both sort of on the debt side and institutional side an opportunity to have capital help us build that out. A second area, uh, and Ben talked about this, is we've got a massive investment that we've made in player development, uh, which has a number of positive benefits to us. Uh, 
Uh, one is it's a brand extension. Everything that we do in, from a development perspective helps extend our brand in the communities where we're operating, helps develop players that can come in and improve the quality of our clubs. And then in soccer, it's unique, as, as people may know. Internationally, player contracts are not traded. You actually sell the rights to that player contract for a transfer fee. Uh, and we were not big participants in that market even two or three years ago. Uh, in the most recent what called transfer window when these, this activity takes place, we were the fourth in the world in terms of outgoing transfers. So young players, you know, their contracts being sold for 10 or $20 million, all as a result of the investment we made in our player development programs. And so I think there's going to be a, a big push uh, to continue to grow that area. And that's got a, a whole bunch of capital needs associated with it. Some of its infrastructure, uh, our, our clubs have um, uh, training facilities that are among the best in the world. Some of it's programmatic. Uh, but I see that's the next big area uh, where investment's going to be needed. Uh, uh, part of that is we're going to launch, uh, just in a, in a few weeks now, a second league, a development league uh, below Major League Soccer that will have both MLS-affiliated clubs but also independent clubs. Our first one is going to be in Rochester. Uh, and that's going to bring its own... Uh, set of capital needs. So I, I think there's a lot of growth opportunities that we see on the competition side and then in the commercial side and many of the panels that you've already had here uh, at the conference have identified whether it's blockchain or NFTs or uh, sports betting. All of these areas are areas of tremendous growth potential for, for the league and its clubs and, and require capital. Uh, so I, I think we're, we're going to find a lot of uses in the coming year. Jordan, Ben, anything? Yeah, I mean, I, I would add, I think that's, that's exactly right. The MLS is unique in the sense that the player development pipeline is can be a source of, of monetization. Um, look, when we when you look at the core business of professional sports teams, there's a lot of increased sophistication that can be applied. And whether I, you know, again, with with Kager's doing and, and been with you folks on just on ticket pricing and data and analytics and that area is something that we think teams should be investing to grow in. But there's a lot of, look, this is amazing content, right? And this is content that is unique, proprietary, unscripted, mostly from, from the teams and leagues. How do you get that and distribute that on a variety of new platforms over time, whether that's as things emerge and more towards a direct-to-consumer world? How do you look internationally? Many of the leagues, the, you know, the NFL is a league that started to do that recently to actually target specific markets internationally big opportunity, um, obviously all the technology-driven things that Mark described, but I wouldn't underestimate just, the, just the, the importance of keeping your building fresh and creating new spaces and enhancing that in-game live experience for folks so that you can drive higher ticket prices, you can enhance the premium experience, you can enhance the value of coming to a game, which continues to be one of the largest drivers and sources of revenue across the industry. There's a ton of growth capital that's needed across um, across teams and leagues, and it's an exciting time to be deploying that capital in our view. What Jordan just said touched on a theme that is impacting our entire firm. We're looking at personalization. And um, you know, if, you, if you have millions of clients, I don't think it matters what business you're in. You know, a cookie cutter kind of one size fits all is not the way of the future. And I think the firms that can embrace big data analytics to deliver a customized experience so that what I experience in the stadium is not the same as what my neighbor experiences. It's the same thing for investments. We actually bought in the fourth quarter of 2020 another Boston-based company called, called 55IP, which is helping us toggle your tax exposure, your ESG exposure, all your different preferences to deliver Jordan's portfolio. Hmm. Right? And I think it's similar in sports. I think if you just deliver one experience for everyone and expect them to embrace that, it's not as effective um, as personalization. It's, it's such a great point about 
the, I think the industry over the last 10 to 15 years in particular, probably even the last seven to 10 years, has really made an effort to bring best practices, best practices from other industries into the sports ecosystem and leverage them. And you're describing several that are critical. The other co cool part about sports, what I think is really unique, is just because it's in many ways at the, like it's a part of the cultural zeitgeist, whether it's crypto or it's um, AR and VR or it's the next social media platform, those things are built in many ways on the backs of professional sports teams and leagues, right? And just look at all the new are the arenas that have new naming rights partners that come from some of these emerging technologies. And so the leagues and teams have an opportunity to really continue to be at the center of those new growth areas that are changing our society and, and driving a lot of eyeballs and attention. We think that's really exciting for, for valuations, but also for the, um, the sustaining uh, engagement of our fans and, and these leagues over time. So I know I'm going to phrase this as an either or question. I know the answer is both, but I guess maybe we can find a way to say something interesting without just saying both. Um, I, and, it was, and it's about whether the IP of these beloved sports teams or the technical capabilities of big data and the direct consumer and personalization efforts are more appealing to an investor. Because I think of a classic three to five year time frame, and I think, let's go software as a service, let's go direct to consumer, big valuation boosts very rapidly. But I hear other people that say that, you know, the real value here is that people love the Patriots, the Cowboys, whoever it is. Is it just both or is one really driving the train right now? I think brand is something that already exists and you've got to keep working on that. But personalization is the experience. And I think that's where the future is going. Make, make everyone's experience with the brand different in a little bit, a little bit. Um, I think that's really, really effective. And that's something we're working on. So maybe one more than the other, but both. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it I mean, certainly is both. There's no question it's both. And, and Ben just said, though, that the power of brand and connection, which is generational, uh, is one of the more unique aspects of the professional sports business and really the key to continuing to grow our fans and deepen the engagement that we have with our fans. And so, and I'm sure there have been panels about this at the conference, everything you do has to be through that lens in thinking about the fan and how that fan relates to you and to your club and to your brand. Uh, and so I agree that there are a variety of different things as industry leaders that we need to do, personalization being, being one of them and looking at how technology can be used effectively. But at the core of it, that you need the brand to be healthy, and, and that's the, that is what everything else emanates from. Mm. Anything to add? Well, it's interesting you mentioned SaaS. Like we 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 joke a lot internally about like if you look at the longevity of sports brands, like the Yankees being a hundred years old, and the um, many of the original six NHL teams being ninety plus to hundred years old, and just the longevity of those brands my partner Doc talks about this a lot, like we've been through a lot in this country. The New York Yankees and, and Major League Baseball have been through multiple pandemics, multiple world wars, a cold war, 9-11, um, et cetera, and the Yankees are still there. What's, do I know for sure that in five to seven years, SaaS Company A and SaaS Company B are both gonna be here, or that they're gonna be completely disintermediated by some new technology? I have no idea. I'm pretty sure the Yankees and the Red Sox are gonna be there. Yeah. And so the, the brand, um, the longevity, the durability, and the affinity of these brands. And it's not just the, the teams, it's the leagues, and it's also the, the stars and the players. And, and 
you know, again, getting back to the idea of you're investing in one thirtieth of the league, right? We know players even more so than ever. It, they're, it, there's a fluidity to which team they're playing for and who, who the, you know, if you're a LeBron fan, you may have followed him around a couple different cities and followed him, not necessarily the, the, the team. And so that accrues to the league and it accrues to all the teams and all the players because the, it's a rising tide for, for league revenues, which are shared, you know, really well with the players. So um, I think that the brand, it's the brand, it's the narrative, it's the storytelling, that's the key element, the data and analytics will help to maximize the value of that. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of capital to infuse in all of that that we just talked about, in the brand experience and in the software and the analytics, the tools that might be able to maximize that. Um, so one thing we haven't talked about too much, and there's lots of good audience questions, so I promise we'll get to them, but, but one thing briefly I wanted to talk about, mostly for you, Jordan, is within your fund, within your investors and your partners, I think when I first learned of this concept, I thought, well, these are some people who are going to need to change their perspective on what private equity is because sports are so different from what we typically see. But maybe not as different as they once were from a traditional private equity target. What, um, in what ways do your investors need to come into this with a different frame of mind than they might be used to? Yeah, it's a great question. Look, we we structured Arctos to be long-term holders of assets. One of the things that the leagues were very clear on from the beginning is we don't want you to look like traditional private equity where you come in, you know, barbarians at the gate, three to five years, you put a ton of leverage on, you pound the table, you fire everyone on the management team, and then you sell the thing in three to five years. That's the antithesis of what the leagues want. They want long-term partners that they can rely on, who can be there, and who and really allow the control ownership groups and families to make the decisions. And so we had to communicate that very clearly to, um, as part of our value proposition at Arctos to, to everyone. And so, you know, the, the corollary that we, um, that we point to in the private equity industry and my partners, so when we formed Arctos, myself and Doc O'Connor, who was my colleague at, at Madison Square Garden, was the CEO, was the managing partner at CAA for many years, we partnered with two, two amazing uh, people who come from the private equity industry, in particular from the private equity secondaries and, and GP stakes business. And they know how to be passive limited partners. They know how to structure funds that allow for long to be long-term holders, and they um, and that's a very very robust and Ben can attest to this very large robust segment of the private equity industry. That by the way I had no idea about coming from Madison Square Garden, but in that um, the, that corollary has allowed us to um, I think tell a, a really robust story about how the firm is built and how it works. Mm -hmm. So we've talked almost entirely about four particular North American sports leagues. Um, where else should private equity be looking for opportunities in sports? A lot of what we've been talking about are fairly unique to American sports leagues with the um, security of not going anywhere and the cost controls, but surely there are other things you all are looking at or that you know, people might look at. What's next on the list? I guess that's probably for you, Jordan, but welcome thoughts over here too. Yeah, I mean, analytics, big data, I think there's something like 20 SPACs with 6 billion looking for deals. So, I mean, there's just not a lot out there that you can buy. I think that's part of the challenge and one of the reasons valuations keep going up. Mm. But other, I mean, are there uh, motorsports, uh, a sport that's popular in some part of the world that I'm not thinking of that, that was an obvious play here? 
Well, look, private equity's been in sports for decades, sure. right? And, and they've been partners with, with many of the biggest leagues in, in a variety of ways. And, you know, in some cases, they actually own leagues or big segments of leagues in Europe or in mm. other sports like, like rugby, et cetera, and cricket. The Formula One's another great example. What, what we tapped into was that there was really very little investment from private equity into franchises themselves, and that was sort of the white space that we saw and that we think um, required and was an opportunity for the leagues to, to, and the ownership groups to change and, and benefit from. But there has historically been a lot of investment in and around sports, whether that's media companies, whether it's leagues, sure. whether it's technology companies, data and analytics, and I think that's going to continue, and it should continue, right? Because that, that, that broad market's huge. Yeah, and, and I think that you will see with the leagues, uh, certainly over time, business opportunities that develop that, while maybe not directly spun off, but can stand on their own and have their own capital structures and take advantage of, as Ben talked about, leagues are wonderful laboratories for so many of the new business ideas that are coming out. And so I, I think there's going to be fund opportunities in terms of uh, providing capital for those types of initiatives over time, too. Makes sense. Uh, another question from the audience, going back to the valuation question, um, how do you differentiate asset valuation for existing franchises versus new franchises slash expansion teams? And are the challenges and uncertainties of expansion teams enough to dissuade investors from going that route? Clearly it hasn't been, at least in a couple of cases, but take a stab at those, Jordan. I, I, so on expansion, um, I find that the people who are behind expansion projects are among the most passionate people that we deal with. Um, and going back to what we talked about drives valuation, um, there is often, in addition to the financial uh, component, a real strong sense of what this can do for a community. In many cases, um, the, the stadiums and the things around the stadiums are part of urban renewal projects and, uh, uh, or they're part of trying to make cities attractive to younger workers. And it's really exciting for them and for us to be part of trying to do something more broad uh, for, for a particular community uh, than just providing you know, a, a sort of more normal business. And so expansion valuations are not impacted by people's concern about um, uh, the uncertainty over it. And, and particularly now in our league, I can speak for us, where we have a track record now of you know, 28 teams. If you have an expansion team, you, you can do a, a professional job of modeling uh, what, the, what the results are going to look like and how it's going to be and, and, and have a strong sense of what you're going to need to do. Uh, so we haven't seen that on the expansion side at all. I just add, I totally agree. Um, and our team is super proud of having led the financing for SoFi Stadium uh, back in 2018. And now a lot of the conversations around expansion are not just the stadium, but also what's around it and how does it impact the community, which I think is really positive. Mm -hmm. uh, does, does market size play a big role here? Obviously, there are incredibly valuable and important sports teams that are in relatively small towns but just the size of the addressable market must matter a little bit. So what do you, what, what's, what's the answer there? Yeah, absolutely, right? It, it, it impacts it because it impacts revenues. Revenues tend to sure. be the, the primary driver of valuation. It's not the only one, but people tend to apply, you know, price to sales multiples on top of revenue and revenues tend to be larger in bigger markets. The Packers and teams that have broad affinity like that are some of the exceptions. But the other reason why markets matter so much is how many, you know, ultra high net worth, you know, 
billionaires or close to billionaires are there in that market who could, if the team were put up for sale tomorrow, buy that team? And are there, you know, we, like in the, in the Bay Area, that's the area that, that's had, you know, 50% of billionaires in North America over the last 10 years came, were created in the Bay Area, mm. right? And so there is just more of a concentration of wealth there than there is not clearly in places like New York and others. So I think the valuation, just because there are more buyers who are in the local market, but one of the factors we look at a lot in, in, is flying time, right? Like how far from New York is that market? Mm. Or how far from LA is that market? And that's a factor to consider, right? And, and um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and over time as more Americans are acquiring teams in Europe. Like what does that mean right. as well? But yeah, markets matter for sure, but it's not the only determinant. Mm -hmm. You are still one of the 30 teams sure, in, sure. In, the, in the league. Right. I will say, though, that spending a lot of time with those folks in the Zoom world, they're, they're a lot less focused on where they have to be on, during their day job. So if there's an attractive uh, franchise available, maybe in a market that's a four-hour flight, I think people are a lot more open to it. Maybe what it, it would have been three years ago. I'm sure you're right about that, but I, I say I am still amazed at how frequently the location of Denver comes up in conversations about the value of the Broncos and that it's not really a long flight for anybody. And I guess I'm thinking, boy, once you have $8 billion in cash, isn't the world more complicated than just how long the flight is? But it's, it's really not. It's, it's a huge part of it that West Coast wealth, Chicago, even from New York, is not really so bad. Uh, so I, maybe sometimes the world is less complicated than we think. Nobody wants to be on a plane longer than they have to be. Um, so we're just about wrapped up, unfortunately. We could go on for a long time. This has been great. Um, Speaking of the Broncos, the one league that hasn't come up at all by definition because it doesn't allow this is the NFL. Any reason to believe they reconsider fund involvement and team ownership in the near term, Jordan? I, I think we've um, we've always been cautiously optimistic that all the leagues would would evolve to to get there, and, and I think we saw Rini on the panel like you know the league has has been especially thoughtful on you know how they rolled out sports gambling and how they're rolling out other elements and. You know, I think they are continuing to be especially thoughtful on this one, too. So we're, we're, we're optimistic, and we'd love to be their partners over time. Great. Well, I'll try to find out if they're getting to that point uh, when I get back to my reporting side of the job. But no indication so far. I think they're probably pretty pleased with how the Broncos thing is going. So I don't, they may not get there until they have to. Um, well, I think we're just about wrapped up, unless there's anything else anyone wanted to add. Um, I think... That's been a wonderful hour. Thank you for your time. Everybody, give a hand to Mark, Ben, and Jordan. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.